This is the Italian American podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping Italian Americans learn about their heritage. We do that by talking with celebrity Italian Americans and also talking with everyday Italian Americans. And believe it or not, usually both types of guests have many things in common because we are all Italian American. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano. And in this episode, we're going to speak with two Italian American authors. Firstly, in our main segment, you'll hear a conversation I had with Marianne Leone, who is an actress and an author. She wrote a book about her son, who unfortunately passed. He had cerebral palsy, and you'll hear more about that in the episode. His name was Jesse. And she also wrote a second book about growing up with an Italian-American mother. She's first generation. But she also talks about her acting as well, and she had a role, a recurring role on The Sopranos. And she kind of talks about how the two came together, and it was a really, uh, I got goosebumps because, you know, her son had passed away. And then in the show, her son passed away and it kind of brought back some feelings. And so we, we dug into that a bit and she's, she's done great things for those with disabilities as well. So we cover quite a bit and I think you'll enjoy it. And she's a very fun person. In the story segment of the episode, I will talk to another talented Italian-American author, Olivia Kate Cerrone, who wrote a book called The Hunger Saint. And the book talks about the Carusi or the little boy's in Sicily, who centuries ago were forced to work in the mines. Actually, it wasn't actually that long ago um, when they actually finally got better labor laws, but they were forced, sometimes at six years old, to work in these sulfur mines. It was, it's a horrible story, but she writes kind of a, a nice story around it in her book, The Hunger Saint, and we'll dive into that. I also want to mention that, first of all, it's Italian American Heritage Month, October, which is great. There's lots of things going on, and one of them we're doing is we want to help to highlight one of our biggest and best traditions, which is food. So we've teamed up with both the Chelly Foods and Cooking with Nona. Many of you heard Rosella Rago on our podcast several times already. She authors the cookbook Cooking with Nona. We've teamed up with them and we've created an Italian-American recipe contest. You can enter by going to italianrecipecontest.com. We have about 15 days to go. The idea behind this is that you enter your recipes and our judges are going to be Rosella and Nona Romana, and they will select the winners, and the winners will come and cook with us in a kitchen somewhere, <laughs> and we will record a special Christmas episode while we cook your specific recipes. It's going to be a lot of fun. I urge you to go and submit your recipe at italianrecipecontest.com. You can even put a photo of the dish if you'd like. And we will decide in early November and we will plan to shoot the podcast episode around the Thanksgiving break and release it in December. So please check it out. We'd love for you to submit your family recipe, right? Food and recipes. These are traditions that bring families together, bring Italian American families together. And not just on Sundays, but a lot of the time, especially around the holidays when people come from different locations. So we hope that you'll be a part of it. And who knows, maybe you'll win and you'll hang out with us in the kitchen for a day and you'll help us make a podcast episode. All right. So now before we introduce our guest, we'd like to offer a brief word from our sponsor, the National Italian American Foundation. I'm John Viola, president of the National Italian American Foundation, proud supporters of the Italian American podcast. 
At NIAF, we know there's nothing more important than family, and we invite you to be a part of ours. We work hard to protect our great heritage, to promote the Italian language, to build stronger ties between Italy and the United States, and to serve as your voice in our nation's capital. Most importantly, with over a million dollars a year in scholarships and grants, we provide young Italian-Americans help in earning a solid education and becoming future leaders for our community. To find out more about how your support serves the community, visit us online at www.niaf.org and become a part of the NIAF family. All right, now I'd like to introduce our guest for our main segment, Marianne Leone. Marianne is an actress, screenwriter, and essayist. Her essays and op-ed pieces have appeared in the Boston Globe, the Bark Magazine, and WBUR's Cognoscenti blog. She had a recurring role in HBO's The Sopranos and has appeared in films by John Sayles, Martin Scorsese, Nancy Savoca, Michael Corrente, Larry David, and the Farrelly Brothers. She is married to the actor Chris Cooper. Her memoir, Jesse, A Mother's Story by Simon & Schuster, is a chronicle of the remarkable life and untimely death of her child who died suddenly at age 17, and we get into that quite a bit in the interview. Her latest book is Ma Speaks Up and a First-Generation Daughter's Talk Back, which, of course, as Italian-Americans, I think you'll love. Both, both great books, different, of course, but uh, you know, great in their own ways. And the quote that I'm going to give you to bring us into this interview is one that is focused around grief because it was obvious that that kind of this idea of loss was kind of an underlying theme of our talk, even though Marianne is really fun and she's laughing for most of the interview. You know, we do, she does talk about some, some really interesting things about the medical field and, and how they say that after a certain period of time, you shouldn't be grieving anymore or else you need medication. And we got into different things, but I thought that this was a good quote for that. The quote is from Alphonse de Lamartine. Sometimes only one person is missing and the whole world seems depopulated. All right, so now I am thrilled to be joined by Marianne Leone, who is an actress, an author, really just does amazing different kinds of work that we're going to talk to her about. Marianne, welcome to the Italian American Podcast. I'm very happy to be here, Anthony. All right, so we're going to talk about some of the work that you do and some of the, the interesting experience that you just had in Italy not too long ago. But before we get into that, I always like to start by asking our guests to tell our audience a little bit about your Italian-American upbringing. Well, both my parents were from Italy. I am first generation. My mother came here to escape fascism and an arranged marriage to an old man. My father came here at 10. I was raised in a very Italian-American enclave right outside of Boston, about seven miles outside of Boston. It's uh, Newton, which everybody thinks of as a wealthy suburb, but we were literally the other side of the tracks, which is now the turnpike. And everyone in my neighborhood was from one little village in central Italy in um, Lazio called San Donato Valdicomino. And... uh, my mother actually was an outsider because she was from Abruzzo, it, which literally, as the crow flies, is pretty much in a straight line, but the Apennines are in the middle. So everyone was either Italian, Irish, or a few French Canadians thrown in. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like you had the neighborhoods with all the Italians and the different shops. Was that how it was or no? 
Totally. My dad had a bar, Leone's Cafe. My mom cooked for his bar. It was the kind of place that foodies today would be. Oh my God, there's stuffed calamari, you know, which my mother was making at home. Right. And, and right across from him was Magni's Bakery and uh, Larry's, and they had fresh sausage and all of that. It, it was, um, it was really saturated, and it was a real community. In the in uh, July, they would paint the colors of the Italian flag down the middle of the main street, and they would carry the Virgin, the Madonna del Carmine, from their village. The, that was the feast um, every year in July. They still have it. Wow. And the mayor of the village in Italy comes over sometimes. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's funny. It's funny. I, I've heard that story multiple times in different places in the United States. So did they speak a dialect or what? Yes. Um, but they, it was a lingua segreta. It was a... Mm. It wasn't anything they taught to us. I mean, it was only after – I just said this when I was uh, in Mantova. I was invited to this Festa della Letteratura. I was very all writers, international writers. And I was saying – people were asking me about being Italian. And I said, you know, I learned Italian later because – and it was only when I started learning actual Italian that I understood what my mother had been screaming at me. Like when she'd say, <laughs> I thought, oh, she's saying, que ti possano uccidere. I hope they kill you, not me, somebody else. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, all right. So let's start to transition into your career because I know in uh, Italian immigrant families, when you're first generation, the idea of having a career in the arts is probably very scary because they're working class, they're workers. They're, right. Um, and so tell me about that decision, that process, how that looked. Well, my dad died when I was 15 and uh, not only was it devastating to the entire family and I adored him, but it also didn't help when I wanted to go to college because my father was self-taught, but I think he did have a respect for education, you know? Hmm. And when I wanted to go to college, first off, what I heard was, you're just going to get married and have kids. And it was like, that's really not going to happen. So <laughs> so I worked my way through. I, I saved my money. I went to a state school in Boston. You know, in those days, you actually could work all summer and then work during your school year and come out without school debt. So yeah. I was able to do that. But the family was not happy that I was going to college, number one. And then when I <laughs> I took a theater course and thought, oh, I'm, I'm going to do this, they were really <laughs> not happy because that meant I'm moving to New York. Right, right. So, all right. So that was your first, so the acting came before the writing. So talk about the acting. You moved to New York and how did you start with the acting? Well, I mean, it was really hard to get work because, you know, I'm not like a classic beauty or anything. I'm a character actress. And I kept hearing how ethnic I was. And <laughs> so I got together with three other actors, all of us looking for work all the time. And we started writing sketch comedy. Then we started performing. We, we tried out at Catch a Rising Star, which I don't think is still there. It was on the Upper East Side. It was one of those stand-up places. And they let us be regulars. And then uh, we put together a show. <laughs> Sounds like Andy Hardy or something. But we put together a show and we, uh, we were performing on Theater Row at West, West Bank Cafe. Wow. And 
we, I, I got an agent from it and I was able to, uh, I got my first paying gig on Kate and Allie, which was a half hour comedy with Jane Curtin was in it, you know, from uh-huh. SN then. And, uh, so you just kind of, you just kind of got into it. You just had to, you know, roll up your sleeves and jump in and do whatever you could do. You know what? I liken it today to kids who put together webisodes. I think it's a really smart move. Like high, uh, high maintenance, which is on HBO, mm-hmm. is from webisodes. That's from people, out of work actors putting together. <laughs> and the same with uh, Insecure, which is also on uh, HBO. But these are from kids who put together basically what is a showcase. Right. You know? That's interesting. So, yeah. so talk to me about The Sopranos. How did that happen? Well, what had happened was I I really hadn't been acting for 10 years because – and I had been writing and I had been selling scripts even though I'm, I'm still unproduced. We had a son – in 1987. I married my husband in 1983, Chris Cooper. We had a boy four years later, and he was born two and a half months premature. He, and that was a strange story in that I was, I was working at MGM as a script reader. And, you know, I would read these scripts. And I also was working, writing video copy for VHS, Hmm. you know? That's interesting. Yeah. And uh, I was on my way to deliver some copy, and I was pregnant, and a guy jumped out of the Hotel Warwick on 6th Avenue, and I got there just as they were pulling the sheet over his body, and uh, his brains were on my shoes. And I called my husband to come and get me because I started hyperventilating. And a few days later, I went into labor, you know. So I had Jesse two and a half months early. On the third day of his life, he was extremely premature. On the third day of his life, he had a brain bleed, and that caused cerebral palsy. So he had severe cerebral palsy. He was nonverbal. He was also brilliant, as we found out. When he came of age to go to school, we were living in uh, Hoboken, and there was no inclusion for kids with disabilities. I mean, it was very little. So we moved back to Massachusetts, where I came from, because Massachusetts was better than the federal average for uh, kids with disabilities, for including them. So here I was in Massachusetts, and Chris was actually making more money than me as an actor, so we both couldn't be away. I was home. I was writing. And uh, I got a call from uh, my agent, who you know basically was on hiatus. He was really Chris's agent, but he was just working with me every once in a while. He said, listen, they're, you know, they want you for the Sopranos. And I was like, are they trolling the bottom of the Italian American barrel? Cause I haven't worked <laughs> in years. And, uh, so I went in and what was weird was, uh, they were looking at my scripts at the time because my writing agent had submitted my scripts. So I felt kind of when I saw David Chase, I, I thought I had blown it because I was so in awe of him as a writer. My agent called afterwards and I said, oh, I totally blew it. I saw David Chase and I, uh, I became so <laughs> odd. And, um, and he said, no, they loved you. You got the part. So, wow. so, so then I became Christopher's mother, you yeah. know, and then I had to deal with an accent that is weirdly close to the Boston accent, but not. We have the open-ended vowels like Christopher, right? You know, but we we pronounce the A's and everything differently. We say, tw- you know, you guys say talk, right? Talk. We say talk. You know, so <laughs> it was. 
it was interesting. But, you know, everybody on the set or a lot of the people on the set I knew because I'd been in all these other Italian-American movies. Like I knew Aida Tortoro from True Love, Nancy Savoca's film True Love. One you should interview, by the way, Nancy. Yeah. So tell me about this, though. Like how this was a show that was like obviously captivated I mean, America, everybody would watch it every weekend. Everyone took it on like it was their family. What was it like to be a part of that on the back end of it, behind the scenes? Basically, I saw it as I was thrilled to be able to act again. I thought it was a really fun set. It was a wonderful set. Everybody really enjoyed themselves on that set. And people were people just knew that they were in something that was really well written and really well done. And so everyone was having a great time. They had terrific food on the set, I have to say. <laughs> and uh, everybody, it was, it was altogether a wonderful experience. I remember the first day when I came there, though, I was like, you know, it's kind of like you're coming in in the fourth season. Everybody's been there. It's kind of like you're, you're at a new high school, right. you know? And none of the people that I knew like Aida or Frank Vincent that I had worked with or Michael Imperioli I had worked on the same film with in Household Saints but I hadn't worked with him right the first person that I actually sat with was someone I'd never worked with and it was Federico Castelluccio who played Fortio yes he's a delightful lovely man who uh is also a master artist did you know this no He's an incredible artist, and he you should go to his website and look at his paintings. He is like an old master. Wow. He's incredible. But he was incredible. Everyone was really friendly, but Federico was kind of the guy who invited me to sit at the table with the cool kids, you know, <laughs> on my first day. So, and also, a side note, I have this really great folk art looking picture of my grandmother and grandfather and it's like it's a painting over a photograph and it's it's gorgeous but it flew off our mantelpiece and my grandmother's face got oh. ripped federico restored the painting for me oh my goodness no he's incredible he's he's a great guy so anyway it was it was an amazing experience i thought the writing was fantastic on that show and i remember when i first saw that show which was three seasons before I got onto it. I was visiting Chris in uh, L.A., and he was shooting American Beauty. And I said, this show is coming on this, on HBO. It's called The Surprise. It's probably going to be stupid. You know, <laughs> sure, it's going to be like some ridiculous Italian-American. They'll never get it right. And then they got it so right. They got it so right. They did. And I said, we're getting HBO. And little did I know later I'd be on that show. So... It was terrific. That's was great. Really- that must have been great. All right. So let's transition into your writing career now, your 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 books. Talk about that. Well, I had always – I had written screenplay and I had sold screenplay as I said before. But – okay, this is going to sound – this is bad. But I didn't really – I had much more respect for long-form prose. You know, I was in awe of long-form prose. Because screenplay is like community. You know, you've got 50 million people weighing in on what you're writing and changing what you're writing. And it is a collaborative effort, screenplay. But books are not. Books are basically you and the editor. So I had written essays for The Globe. I wrote one about what it's like to be the wife when you're walking the red carpet with a movie star. (laughs) (laughs) 
and I, I wrote about the first time we walked the red carpet. I, I, you know, I just wrote these funny essays and, and then our son died suddenly. We were just devastated. I wrote an essay for the globe about that. And then I decided to write a memoir about Jess to share him or basically, no, it wasn't that it wasn't as altruistic as that. It was really, I wanted to spend time with him. So I, I wrote this essay. I got a lit agent and she, she submitted it, got picked up by the fourth publisher, which was Simon and Schuster, which is a big publisher. But the, the weird thing where the Sopranos comes back into this, and I talked about this in the book, is after Jess had died, and I almost died after he died because, I, ugh. anyway, I was still doing the Sopranos, you know? So I said to Chris, I'm really worried that in the last season, my television son is going to die. And sure enough, I got the script. You know, and he died and they wanted me to come in and fall in front of the casket and just let out a primal scream. And I, I actually fainted on set that day because it was just too overwhelming. And everybody there was just so kind to me, including Gandolfini, who I loved, who, you know, after after I fainted and I woke up to one of his guys who was an ex-cop saying, like, are you on meds with his face <laughs> like really close to me? Jim came by and said, anything for attention. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, uh, oh, gosh, that was just a really strange. Did they and, know, like, yes, your experience? They all, okay. They all knew. They all knew. Yeah. So, so that was, that was intense. So you really, so you really, I mean, that's amazing that, that what happened to you in the show after what happened, but it does sound like even though you came into that cast late, later than most of them, you really made some friends there. Yeah. I mean, they're not people I see all the time, but like, I still talk to uh, the woman who played Rosalie April, right. um, she read my book and, and just loved it. And, you know, Edie I've seen, but, you know, very rarely. I mean, we live in Boston now, so basically we see more writers than we see actors. There are a lot more writers who live here. Tom Parada lives here, Andre Debuse, who wrote House of Sand and Fog, and Rick Russo. And last night we met uh, Stephen King. Which was really oh, exciting. Oh my goodness! Wow, that's amazing. But but let's get back to your book because you wrote this book because, yes. like you said, you know more more than the book itself, you really wanted to spend time with your with your son. I wrote the book really to spend time with my son, but the effect of writing the book was that I have a file cabinet full of letters from parents who uh, wrote me saying that uh, reading the book had given them strength to fight for their own children because I outlined in that book the battle to get Jesse his basic uh, civil rights. What had happened was we were in Hoboken, where there was very little inclusion, and we moved back to Massachusetts when Jesse came of school age because it was better than the national average for kids going to for inclusion of kids with disabilities. And then we managed to move to the one small town on the South Shore where the guy in charge of special ed is this guy who is used to just running things the way he wants to do it. He just ships all kids with disabilities off to a segregated school, doesn't bother including them. And uh, basically, I won't go into the details of how we ended up battling with this guy, but 
he was quoted as saying, why should we spend money on these kids? They don't give anything back to society. That just enraged me. I mean, I said to my husband, this guy's getting a dead horse's head in his bed. He's, he's losing his job. <laughs> and I organized the parents. I called them all to a meeting at the local library. And our local rep was there, our congressman. And <laughs> for all those who are cynical about uh, politicians, this guy was an Eagle Scout who set up his table at the library once every two weeks and was like, I am an elected representative. What can I do to help you? And when he heard us going on, he said, how can I help? And he did. He was a dem. And uh, what happened was we got a parent elected to the school board. We got this guy's contract not to be renewed. And our son got to go to school and become a straight A student and be on the honor roll, study Latin, become a poet. And basically, wow. though he didn't intend to, he changed the lives of the kids he interacted with. He really did. Uh, That's amazing. Tell me. Marianne, tell me what you were telling me about before with the, the medical, with the six years of grieving or the six, what was it? Oh, so uh, I had written this essay. It's on my website, which is MarianneLeoneCooper.com because strangely enough, there's another Marianne Leone who spends, spells her name exactly the same way as I do. I had written an essay because I read that the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual proposal by the um, – whatever the American Psychiatric Association is, uh, we're proposing that six weeks after you lose someone that you love, if you still have insomnia, if you still have days when you can't get out of bed, if you still are grieving to that extent, you have a major depressive disorder oh and probably gosh. need to be on drugs. And this drove me insane. And it really, what I wrote about is the fact that, and I wrote about this in my book, Jesse, too, that my mother's, well, I actually, if you wouldn't mind, I wouldn't mind reading to you what sure. I'm uh, from. This is what I read in, when I was in Italy, in Italian, but I'll read it to you in English. Of course, my mother's culture had icons, songs of lamentation, and dress codes for grief. She could turn to the Madonna Adolorata for consolation. She could put on black garb and sing Scoramai, a lament that means you have left me dark. But aside from the all-black wardrobe, which I already possess, I am too American for these rituals. I don't live in a culture that would recognize them anyway. My culture is miles away from grief or aging or even acknowledging the existence of death. I invoke Jesse like an amulet, like a scalpular, like a precious stone against the world and all its woes. I keep going back to Italy because that is where I found him. That's from the book. Wow. That's amazing. And that's, and even before you just read that, I was thinking to myself, go tell any Italian that they can only have six weeks to grieve and they'll, they'll kick you out of their house. But, and you just cemented it there with some of the, um, the rituals that you talked about and, that's amazing. That's really amazing that, that, that someone would even think like that. Our culture does not permit it, really. I mean, if you even look at Hollywood movies, they're all about, oh, you know, we bought a zoo and then it was over. We were fine. We, <laughs> right. we just believed in it. 
it's not the way it works. It's the same thing we do with disability. We, we make it into inspiration porn. I was thrilled when uh, it got an Italian publication. And it was amazing to see the response of the Italians to go there and see that just recently. Um, and to be invited to the Festa della Literatura in Mantova, which was, you know, um, it was uh, an international festival. And sure. Elizabeth Stroud was there. Yeah. I'm just pausing here for a minute because... I really wish my husband would pick up the phone when it first rings, but okay. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so listen, tell me about, so this book did very well. It's been, it's an Italian. You went to Italy, you did the reading there. Tell us about the, the latest book. Okay. So the latest book is from Beacon Press and it's called Ma Speaks Up and a first generation daughter talks back. <laughs> and I love, and a first-generation daughter talks back, because that's what I said in confession every week. I talk back to my mother. So <laughs> my mother was this powerhouse. I'll tell you, I did not appreciate her when I was a kid. I really wanted Donna Reed, and I got on a manani, and I was freaked out <laughs> by her. She was... You know, she didn't speak English well. I, I was a horrible daughter. I made fun of her. I, you know, she would get so frustrated. You wait till your father gets home. He's going to give you an election. <laughs> and I'd say, really? Who's running for office now? And, you know, just horrible, horrible kid. But I learned to appreciate her as I get older. And the fact is, is that my mother was widowed at 43 with three kids. English is a second language and really no marketable skills outside of the fact that she was a fantastic cook, but she was just a really funny woman. My friends adored her because she was insane. But when I was coming up, she just drove me nuts because she was so different. Culturally, she was on the opposite end of anything I could relate to as an American kid. Right. So this book is about that struggle to, <laughs> to uh, get her, but also she was she was hilarious. I mean, she, she was a bookie. She booked numbers for the neighborhood wise guy. <laughs> you know, she was amazing. And, uh, when I married my husband, she was so shocked that a man would want me because she was like, she would say to him, I don't see what you see in her. <laughs> <laughs> oh my she goodness. Say, she would say it to my son. Ah, I don't know. Your mother walk around, smoke, talk, act crazy, you know? So, <laughs> but, she loved the Sopranos and she would go around, you know, when she would like be walking around, you know, her domain was up the street from our house, which was, like I said, a really Italian neighborhood. And she would go around to um, make all her stops and she'd have my picture. She'd be like, you watch the Sopranos? And then she'd flash <laughs> my picture. <laughs> she was doing the marketing for you. <laughs> doing the marketing. She was just, she was amazing. She was really funny. I learned to appreciate her, believe me, thank God, before she died. And, you know, the opening story in Ma Speaks Up is called The Official Story. And I'm not going to give it away, but it's about how when you're an immigrant, there's the official story and then there's the real story. So my mother kept a secret from us for years, which I didn't find out till she was like almost 80 years old. Hmm. It tells me about there are so many things that Italian immigrants keep secret, you know, when they come here. I think they feel like you don't want to hear about my life. It's just too different. And it's true. When I was a kid, her life was too different. I couldn't I couldn't put it into a context, you know, like she seemed like this woman from another 
uh, reality. Like right. I remember saying to her, where did you get that scar over your forehead when I was about 10? And she told me a donkey had kicked her in the head. And I oh thought, my I don't know any other kids whose mother has been kicked in the head by a donkey. <laughs> yeah. It's like, how can you relate? Like you can't even relate to where she came from. Right. No, I mean, no. Or like when I was about 20, I took her to see a special day, you know, the Marcello Mastroianni, Sophia Loren, incredible movie. Mm-hmm. And place in one day and she is this woman this italian housewife in rome who has like a hero worshiping crush on benito mussolini (laughs) downtrodden downtrodden housewife if you haven't seen this movie do see it it's fantastic and uh marcello mastroianni is a gay man who's about to be taken away to a concentration camp by the fascists it's it's an incredible film but anyway in the movie it shows like these little kids marching in their little fascist uniforms and my mother in the theater said hey that was me i marched for mussolini i was like hey keep it down (laughs) keep it quiet we don't want the whole theater to know you were a fascist (laughs) so that's that's really interesting yeah you know when you when you talk about it like that It's just cements a lot of the stuff that we talk about on the show with the history of Italian Americans is that, you know, the generational gaps can be very difficult to to grasp because especially for those that came here, we have no idea what their life was like, really. Exactly. But you know what? I what I admire about my mother. And if you go to my website under writing, you'll see my most recent essay is that. I'm very offended by the amount of racism that I see in Italian-Americans who forget that we were the other, you know, we were the other not that long ago. You know, one of the largest lynchings in America took place of Sicilian-Americans in New Orleans, Louisiana. Yeah. Yeah. So I wrote a story about how my mother lived in the house with my sister. My sister stayed in the house where I grew up, you know, in that neighborhood. And the lady next door who was an Italian lady. Uh, her daughter's, her husband died, her daughter's moved away and she went into assisted living and she sold her house right next door to three generations of Pakistani Muslims who moved in. And my mother's response was, oh, the little girl, she's the same age as my granddaughter. So she loved that. <laughs> she loved the 18 year old guy because he was the same age she was when she came here. Right. And she really felt for him. She said, I know what it's like to be alone in a new country. Right. So yeah. my mother totally accepted to her. They were like, the only, the only place she didn't cross over was food. She, she could not understand why they wouldn't eat her meatballs. They're like, we're Muslim. She's like, no, there's no pork. No, it's okay. She She would lie about her meatballs. But, but other than that, she, she totally, she got that they were people striving like our family was striving, you know? So that's, yeah, that's, that's amazing. And I admire that in retrospect. I really do. I admire that about her. So how does it feel for you to have written these books, one about your son, one about your mom and have had success with these books? Well, uh, you know, it's great. I'm, I'm going to be reading in New York, actually, on October 18th. I'm going to read at the Calandra Institute. Do you know that? Place? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'm we read we had night. Anthony Tamburi on the podcast. Cool. I'm going to be reading with Helen Stepinski. Do you know her? Uh, no, she, I don't know Helen. She wrote this book called Murder in Matera about a murder in her family. Oh. You should maybe have her on. That's, <laughs> no, that's interesting for sure. Yeah. And it's great that you're going to be in New York, and I can still hear some of that New York Sopranos accent every <laughs> once in a while. Every few sentences it comes I through. 17 years there, you know. I mean, I met my husband there. We lived right in Hell's Kitchen. We lived in a six-floor walk-up. 
we were like starving actors together in New York. So, you know, he, uh, I met him in acting class. Although to my mother, you know, because Chris was, uh, not Italian, it meant he was automatically Irish, even though he doesn't have a drop of Irish blood. So <laughs> she would like test him. She'd be like, Chris, you like a drink? <laughs> because that was a warning to me about not dating Irish boys. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, Marion, you've had a very interesting life, a lot of different projects you've worked on. You've obviously had the experience with your son, which was moving, and you met uh, your husband, who was an actor. You're both acting. Where, where do you go from here? Are you just focused now on these books and your writing and, and getting the getting the message well, I, out there? I, I do occasionally act. I, I, I just auditioned for something, actually, that's shooting in uh, in New York, but I don't want to be any more specific, but... But this is my favorite. She's described as elderly. <laughs> but she's Italian. So <laughs> we'll see. But uh, yeah, I still do occasionally act. I I am working on another book, too. You are? Uh, okay. So, but you know, the, the weird part is when you start flacking a book, it almost takes up all of your writing time. Yeah. You know? I know. Also, I, I read all my husband's scripts for him, too. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, it's good to have input of a writer, right? When you're picking your scripts. For sure. For sure. Right. So, so Marianne, as we wrap up here, where can our, um, is the best place for our listeners to find you to go to your website? Yes, they can go to the website or I have an open Facebook page to Marianne Leone author. So I'm on either of those. And, uh, I try to keep the website more up to date, but I'm just, a, I'm, I'm a slacker because, you know, I just got back from Italy. I had a book tour in Italy. I can't even believe I'm that's saying amazing. those words. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> it well, was awesome. listen, we're, we're thrilled that you spent some time here with us and that you shared some of this with our listeners. I know that it was, uh, you know, the whole, the whole experience with your son is, is really moving. And the fact that that happened on the Sopranos and that was just touching and i'm glad to see that you've taken it and you've helped a lot of people with it i want people to also know that it's not it's not a a weep fest because my my kid was the first person to get the joke at the table so i wanted to honor that so there's a lot of humor in the book too because jesse was the first guy to get the joke so i wanted to honor that about him so the the book is not it, it won't pull you down. Actually, Dennis Leary gave me a blurb on that book and said he laughed a lot and then cried and then laughed again. So, Wow, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Well, all right. So you'll have access to Marianne's writing on her website. You can see uh, your events are posted there too or readings or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, all the events are there. And uh, listen, again, thank you for spending time with us and can't wait to come and see you and actually get to meet you and, and laugh oh, I with you. I get to meet in person. I really do, Anthony. <laughs> thank you, Marianne. All righty. Thanks for what you're doing. Now it's time for the Italian-American story segment of our episode. And this segment has evolved a bit. Initially, this segment was focused on allowing you to tell your family stories, traditions, which it still is. You can go to italianamericanexperience.com and record your a story about your family and we can play it on here, a tradition. However, we also try to use it to highlight Italian-Americans that are doing things in the community or that are artists or that are professionals in other fields. And in this segment, I'm going to be speaking with Olivia Kate Cerrone, author of The Hunger Saint. 
Her Pushcart Prize-nominated fiction won the Crab Orchard Review's Jack Dyer Fiction Prize. And the book, The Hunger Saint, which was published by Bordighera Press, is a historical novella about the child miners of Sicily. And the book was praised by Kirkus Reviews as a well-crafted and affecting literary tale. It is a good read. I've got it. It's a quick read. It's a great story. And we're going to chat with her a little bit on what made her want to write about such a topic and you know how it came about. Now I'd like to welcome Olivia Kate Saroon, author of The Hunger Saint, the Italian-American podcast. Olivia, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. So Olivia sent me her book, The Hunger Saint, soon after I had returned from my summer in Italy and specifically in Sicily. And the book is a book written about children hundreds of years ago when children had to work in the sulfur mines in Sicily, which, which is really sad because, you know, their families had no money, they needed food, and they would send the children into these mines under awful conditions where they literally worked. I mean, they could have been six years old. And it's a very sad story, but Olivia wrote a, a beautiful book around it with a beautiful story, uh, even though it's a sad topic. And so I wanted to invite her on to talk about that a little bit. But Olivia, before we do that, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Sure, absolutely. Well, I'm a writer and I'm a university instructor. I teach at Suffolk University in Boston. But fiction writing is really what I'm passionate about. And when I learned about the Carusi, which was during a Sicilian language class, this was over five years ago, I just became very devoted to the subject. And I really wanted to connect people to this history through storytelling, through a compelling story. But as you said earlier, it is a story that's rooted in a lot of research. Right. So when you say, just for the listeners, when you say Carusi, that means the children, right, that worked in the mines? Absolutely. Yes. Caruso translates to boy or kid in Italian and also the Sicilian version of that. And uh, so they would call the Carusi the boys. They were the child miners of Sicily. Sure. So what made you so interested in the topic when you heard about it? Well, I was just so haunted by it. And specifically, I was horrified that I, you know, I'm a Sicilian, I'm a third generation Sicilian American. I'm very passionate about my heritage. And yet I had never heard about this history. And it disturbed me that it was not something that was really talked about or really known among both Italian Americans and Italians. And so I spent about five years just researching, reading everything I could, um, stories and, and films, uh, stories by Italian authors and films that had been made. Uh, there was actually a, a, a book by Booker T. Washington um, called The Man Farthest Down, where he went to Sicily. He went to the poorest areas of, of Europe, and he went to Sicily and specifically documented the Carusi. And this led me to finally going to Sicily myself and conducting a series of oral histories among surviving sulfur miners of the region of Enna, specifically the town of Volcanera Caropepi, where people were very generous in sharing uh, their stories of their lives and their knowledge of the Carusi with me. And this became the foundation for writing The Hunger Saint. So did you actually find miners or were they minor family members of miners? Or? No, they were miners. They had, you know, long since been retired. The sulfur mining industry lasted in Italy right up until the 1980s. But of course, stricter labor laws and human rights 
advocacy had come into a greater effect by the 70s, 1970s, 1980s, by that time. But in the poorest regions of Sicily, the use of the Carusi, uh, the labor of the Carusi was used right up until post-World War II, uh, which was really disturbing for me to, to learn. So I was very grateful to learn as much as I could in this context. Sure. So without giving away the entire book, tell us a little bit about because even though it's a sad topic and your book is very rooted in research, you did write a story around the character. How do you pronounce the name? Newtoni? Newtoni, yes. Newtoni. Talk a little bit about how you, what made you write it in that way or how you came up with that idea. Well, I think that art and stories that really last, leave, leave us a lasting impression and communicate a real sense of history are stories that are character driven, that are compelling. We get, we as readers, we become attached to the fate of the character. And that's who I am as a writer. I'm interested in character driven stories where I become emotionally connected. And so I, you know, the plight of a 12 year old boy who is devoted to his family and yet he longs for a life outside of the mines. That to me was very compelling. And it came to me through layers of research and stories I had read, stories I had heard from actual miners. And so I let that process, that creative process really come out of that research um, and create a story that was compelling, but also very true to the details and the facts that I had been immersed in. That's great. And it, and it really is, uh, it's a very interesting read. And you can check the book out, The Hunger Saint, on Amazon. You can get it on Amazon. There's some, uh, there's excellent reviews on Amazon, which will even open open you up to a little bit more about the book. And I highly recommend it. So, Olivia, what else are you working on? Or is there any other projects that you can tell us about that you're working on or thinking of working on? Thank you so much. Um, I am working on a full-length novel right now that takes place in contemporary Boston. And it deals with themes of immigration and American identities. You know, a lot of timely issues that I think so many of us are trying to grapple with right now. Mm, yeah, that's uh, we've we've explored that quite a bit on the podcast here. Mm. In fact, we had uh, we interviewed Maria Lorino, author of the Italian Americans, the companion book to the PBS series, but she's also written some other some other works on specifically what you're talking about. You know especially from her perspective as a female growing up as an mm -hmm. Italian at that time when she was growing up, you know, there was definitely some identity challenges, but it, it is an interesting topic. So before we let you go, just tell us about your background. Where in Italy are you from? Or you said Sicily. Correct? Yes. My, my, I'm third generation Italian American. Uh, my family is mostly from Sicily and I was very fortunate after some extensive research to obtain my dual citizenship with Italy. Um, so I feel a very strong connection to Italy. And I think there is just so much we can talk about that artists and writers can give light to that go beyond the more sentimental notions that I think we're all used to and dig into those stories that are yet to be heard. Absolutely. That's great. All right, Olivia, last thing, where can our listeners find you? I mean, I mentioned that the books on Amazon, is there anywhere else you can, you want to point them to or? Well, there's also SPD books and uh, Barnes and Noble. Actually, um, I'm very fortunate 
that Barnes & Noble will include The Hunger Saint in five of their New York City-based stores for the month of October. That's as great. they are celebrate. Yeah, I'm so grateful. Um, they are celebrating Italian-American authors this month, and I'm just so grateful to be a part of all of that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm 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 excited to be part of it too. Um and you know, they're doing a lot with the Columbus Day parade and mm-hmm. they they're just I think it's a great thing. Dolores and I talk about this all the time on the podcast that there are some there's truly great Italian American authors that have done a lot, but you know, they don't always necessarily get the recognition, so it's good to see that um Mr. Riggio and Barnes and Noble is really going out of their way to make that happen. So Absolutely. All right. Well, Olivia Kate Cerrone, author of The Hunger Saint, thank you for spending a few minutes with us here. Thank you so much, Anthony. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Italian American podcast. We love getting your feedback and your iTunes reviews because, you know, we don't really get to talk to you much or hear you since this isn't a live show. So we do appreciate it and we are reading everything and we absolutely love it. Don't forget to submit your recipes at italianrecipecontest.com and get into the recipe contest. And don't forget to connect with us on social media. You can find us on Facebook at the Italian American Podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Italian American. And you can find us on Twitter at Ital American. Ciao, ciao.